Hi guys, this is Jake Parker. Welcome back to another episode of the Beyond Fit podcast, where it's my job to help you apply knowledge that is both scientific and practical into your own life to maximize your physique development and your overall body, as well as your mind. The combination of these two things is what makes you Beyond Fit. Hi guys, this is Jake Parker. Welcome back to Beyond Fit. My guest today is Scott Stevenson, and Scott is a bodybuilding coach and also a PhD. And one of the things I love the most is being able to bring on people to the show that have an educational background in exercise and nutrition and things of that nature, but have also lived the day-to-day and are bodybuilders themselves, at least in some respects, because I think that it's always so interesting how you combine the academic sort of knowledge with the bro science or bro knowledge sort of um, sort of information. And so Scott was just getting ready to explain. We were kind of chatting before the show about his process um, of coaching. And we thought that it'd be a fun place to start out the show. So Scott, if you'd introduce yourself a little bit and then kind of uh, talk a little bit about what your process of coaching looks like. Yeah, I mean, hit the nail on the head there. That's a great description of sort of my background. I literally... I went through, I did what many people did. You go to college, you kind of sort of find your way. They do a horrible job, and at least in the U.S., of, of, of telling students and helping students find the path that's going to match what will give them the greatest life. That's life the happiness. truth right there. It's, I mean, I was a college professor, so I was an advisor to people, and I saw this. There's a funny story about my, uh, my alma mater where they literally just dropped the ball left and right. They wouldn't let me have the majors that I wanted. They did almost nothing to get me... Um, going in the right direction graduate school wise, they end up having to change graduate schools. It all worked out in the end. It's not, this isn't bitterness, but they mm-hmm. came back and years later they would ask for a donation. So I finally, yeah. after about 10 years of that, I'm like, I gave them a dollar. So <laughs> just, and I explained this of course to the person who's listening to the donations and for several years thereafter, they would send me letters saying, thank you so much for your generous donation of $1. Oh, that's in hilarious. The form, asking for more money. I'm like, you just are reminding me that I did the right thing in donating a dollar. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, there's really, I was able to find my way. Despite that, I ended up uh, with an undergraduate degree in physics in German, which was really quite nice. But then I figured it's not what I want to do with my life. Went to grad school and just sort of started following. I knew that if I found something I liked to do that I wanted to do, which I've been a meathead since I was a kid, that I could somehow make a way to make that a living. My concern, of course, was is going to be something that if I focus too much on it, that I'd suck the love out of it. You know, I wouldn't, I didn't mm-hmm. want to destroy my passion in making it a money-making venture, but I've never really been money oriented. So I wasn't terribly concerned about that. And I've just since then managed to piece together a variety of things that have um, been connected to, to bodybuilding and fitness and just helping people and educating people, which is kind of the, kind of the main thrust that I figured out as I started in grad school. Cause you, you have to teach generally when you're in a master's degree program or a PhD program, unless you come in specifically with a research assistantship, you'll be teaching at some point. Just friggin' loved it. It was just so mm-hmm. much fun to interact with people and watch the minds light up and, and watch people who are curious as I am dig into information. And I almost got to relive vicariously some of the, the epiphanies and things that I had had as I was learning things along the way. And uh, so I kind of done a little bit of all of it. I ended up uh, as a assistant professor in California, weaned myself away from that and to get an, become an acupuncturist. I was going to bring that back and actually teach some of those classes. 
decided to stay in Arizona where I was for about a decade. I owned a gym for four years there. I taught at the acupuncture school, had an acupuncture practice. Gosh, I was on the internet, like literally from the big bay, essentially of when it all started. Cause I've been around mm-hmm. that long. So I've been kind of, I was kind of just helping people along the lines online uh, on just answering questions, private messages, et cetera, since the late nineties. And I've been personal training people, oops, since 1993, I think when I first got certified. So were you big on the like bodybuilding.com forums? Not that one. No, intense muscle is one that many listeners will recognize. And that I was actually one of the super mods on there from the very get go. And before that, there's miscellaneous.fitness.weight, which was a news group that existed before bodybuilding.com. Bodybuilding.com was almost, it was just so crazy and so full of trolls, mm-hmm. which people may not even use that term so much anymore, but it was just so, so, yeah, it was just so like, I'm going to stay away from that. Whereas an intense mm-hmm. muscle, I'll give a shout out to Ken Hill. He goes by Skip. He was one of the owners of that board and there was, uh, there was no playing around if you you had like one or two and three strikes and then you're gone. Mm -hmm. So we kept it very much under control and it was, it was a pretty formidable board for about a decade. So that was like, those kind of things I think were just everything at the time. Like you talk about starting that in the late nineties, like for me, um, basically, so I'm 25 now, I would say I first started kind of bodybuilding and looking around online in like 20, probably 2010 or so. And bodybuilding.com was huge. Like I didn't really know anything about bodybuilding and so I kind of look back on it now and it's like on one hand it was helpful but I think on the other hand it was very kind of detrimental in a way to me because I was looking so much into the specifics and it was kind of like derailing me it was like the forest for the trees right and so I'm curious when you talk about being (laughs) very interested in in bodybuilding and calling yourself a meathead from a young age did you ever go through the period of like not understanding and really struggling or was building muscle and getting strong always something that kind of was natural for you? Like, were you an athlete or how did you come about that? No, I mean, I, I was an athlete, but I wasn't terribly gifted. I mean, mm-hmm. I didn't, there's no one's going to offer me a college scholarship or anything I did, mm-hmm. but I just loved the training. So just to, just to put the timeline in perspective, I started lifting in 1981. So it's almost 40 years now that I've been doing this. So there was no internet. There was, you just sort of figured out what you could from mm-hmm. Flex Magazine, Muscle and Fitness. And all of that, of course, was sort of branched off from bodybuilding based on Arnold's encyclopedia bodybuilding, high volume sorts of things. So I spent years, well over a decade, thinking that more is better and Mm -hmm. having a body that can handle that being as young as I was and just pounding myself to death Mm -hmm. before I started figuring out this is just not going to work. It's way too much. I mean, there were times like one of the most excessive things that I remember doing was um, 20 sets of 20 on squats. That is brutal. Which is, and I was was doing that on a a weekly basis for a long period of time. Insane. There's a program people can maybe find. I wish, I wish I could find the pamphlet called Cybergenics, which I did three times growing, three rounds of it growing up. And just the squats for that were, you would do, do this, this particular thing about to describe five times. You'd get a partner, you'd go get a weight, you could get five or six, five to eight reps with, go to failure, do force reps until you can no longer control the negative. Drop down, another set of roughly eight, four straps until you can no longer control the negative. Drop down, another set of about eight, four straps, and this was as hard on the partner as it was on the lifter, because mm-hmm. you have to move the weights around. 
After that, you would do deep jumps. So you're just trying to jump off the ground, going all the way down, touching the floor. And so you can no longer get airborne. And then you would do body weight squats until you can no longer stand up under, under your own volition, at which point you'd pull yourself up until you no longer can control, lower yourself under control and then do 60 seconds of maximal contraction in the, le in the leg muscles. Surprised you even recovered a week later. You do that five times. And then you go to knee extensions and hamstring curls. It was just asinine, but you know, we did it. Mm -hmm. And um, so I realized that that's way too much. And eventually I started, actually it's funny because things sort of wound around. And by the time around 2000 or so, when I found DC training, dog crap, is that mm -hmm. something you're listening yeah, to? Yeah, Dante Trudell. Right, mm -hmm. right. Dante's a friend of mine. He was another moderator on Intense Muscle, super mod. So he was one of the, he and Ken and several of us were also- And timeline-wise, this was around? That uh, that started around Dante's Cycles for Pennies. Um, it was this post on a now defunct board by a person who's now passed on, <laughs> owned by a person was, it was like, I think it was 2000 or so, maybe okay. 2001. Um, let me see if I can piece this together. Yeah, that's about right. Yes, because I found that I found that when I was in California, and I had come to basically, essentially what Dante was doing being a very very effective way of training for me, except for the rest pause cluster sets that he mm -hmm. does. So, but that took me ten years to kind of refine to that. So I went from you know the '80s to the early '90s, blasting the crap out of myself. Mm -hmm. And then in the 90s, when I was in school, I started figuring out some things, training different ways. I was influenced by a number. I was, I got to train was at Texas and be uh, sort of uh, influenced by the powerlifters there. So Jan and Terry Todd. Terry Todd is someone you can see used to. And Jan actually too used to emcee the World's Strongest Man competitions. There's sport historians there who, will or who are really well known in that regard. And one of my uh, lab mates, fellow students there was a powerlifter trained with much lower volume, very big, strong guy, just figured some things out. And then the internet kind of came on board in the, in the nineties, mm -hmm. late nineties, started learning things there. And about around 2000, I'd figured out that lower volume, a little bit higher frequency was going to work for me. So to answer your question, yeah, I had about 20 years, right. Mm -hmm. And I spent figuring that out. So it did not come. Uh, it wasn't as if somehow I had a, uh, would have been great if I had some sort of a mentor who said, this is the way, yeah. And his particular perspective was one that matched what worked for me because mm -hmm. that's the thing. And then, and the research is really sort of uh, finally now kind of catching up to this. There's a particular study that was recently published, which, which I think is one of the, it's one of the most, in my mind, it's one of the most important research studies related to bodybuilding training that I've seen that sort of uh, exemplifies this idea. There will be people and many, many pros grow from, high volume quote unquote bro splits there's no doubt about that you can you can see despite what they might write in the magazines um that's not that may not be what they do and i've seen this mm -hmm. firsthand for instance dave henry is uh an ifb pro dave and i have worked together for years and years he was my training partner when i was okay. in those early 2000s doing dc training and later my program fortitude training and they would come and interview him. Actually, somebody's come in town, get pictures for a, an article in the magazines, and they just make up a training split. Like, yeah, I think was, I heard that. I heard, think I heard Arnold say something like that in his book, too. Yeah. Like when he was just, working with, like, Joe Weider. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and Joe, Joe had sort of his – I think Joe kind of had – he wanted to sort of create 
a persona behind mm -hmm. those guys and create, you know, he wanted to have some consistency in the message he was sending training wise, I believe. But for Dave, literally like they take pictures, they ask him some questions and nothing would be related to training. And I've heard this from other pros too, but Dave was someone who I was, you know, talking to firsthand. All of a sudden there's some training regime that ends up in the article. <laughs> like, he's like, Dave, where did, you, where did they get that from? That's not even close to what we're doing. He's like, mm -hmm. I don't know. They just made it up. Mm -hmm. So that information was not, um, not of the highest fidelity, let's say at least. Yeah. And I think so, that that kind of reminds me of like the way that like you talk about, you know, things kind of turning towards evidence-based or science-based now. And it's almost like from my perspective, you know, like I said, I've kind of been in the bodybuilding sort of mindset and space about 10 years. And it seems like 10 years ago, you were kind of looking at things in the bro science sort of way. And some people were kind of misled by that. And now it's almost turned to the completely other side where people are a little bit too science-based and evidence-based and, oh, you know, I heard so-and-so talking about this article and this is the best way to do this. And something mm -hmm. I heard you talk about on Steve Hall's podcast, which is what I said, I think how I got introduced to you uh, was um, your book is Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach. And you said that you kind of gleaned a little bit of information from like the Be Your Own Buddha sort of mindset and mm. just figuring things out for yourself and figuring out what works for you. Because I think so often when you study and try different things, there's just so many different mindset shifts you'll go through. And I'm like, I know for me and a lot of people that kind of study the history of bodybuilding a little bit, you go and you look at Arnold and Franco Colombo and they're talking about being in the gym for five hours. And then you discover like Mike Mincer and Dorian Yates and they're like 45 minutes, three or four times a week. And you're like, what the hell do I do now? You know, it's mm -hmm. so hard to glean between the different sources of information. So what does that process look like for you and for the average either person you coach or just more so I call people like myself and my listeners more like a lifestyle bodybuilder where you work yeah. out like a bodybuilder, but maybe give yourself more leeway, but are still focused on finding that not, maybe not path of least resistance, but just the things that are going to work the best and make the most sense for you. I think a kind of, a, there's so many ways to narrow in on this, but a first step mm -hmm. would sort of be, and this is something that I have actually associated with my book. I have a, a personal bodybuilding inventory. It's a, it's a downloadable PDF form. People can fill it in, erase it, fill it in again, and sort of track how their progress and their goals and things are changing. It's based on the intake sheet that I formed that I use with my clients is to try to figure out kind of what you like to do, what you're willing to do and what's sustainable. And so that's sort of like your driving motive force to get from point A to whatever point B would be your goals. So you got to look for a mismatch there. If you want to look like, you know, someone who would be on the cover of, of men's fitness magazine or what have you all the time, and you're naturally not a lean person with genetics that, that leave you around that as sort of a settling point body fat wise, then you're going to have to have a matching willingness and internal motivation to do the things to, to create that physique, which may be, you know, chicken and rice, chicken and rice, six meals a day, completely ordered, maybe even orthorexic, you might call it types of eating in order to, to maintain that. That could be even something that takes away from your overall um, mm -hmm. wellness, you know. Would you, would you define that word real quick? I'm not sure if I'm 100% orthorexic. Oh, it's a, there is a, there actually is a more clinical term, which people should probably look up, but so ortho meaning like straight up and down, it's, it's, the, it's the idea that someone has, um, in this case, a, a, a mental, a mental psychological disorder where they eat in certain very specific ways and any deviation from that causes them massive amount of, of stress. Okay. Psychologically speaking. So 
like I have to eat this way. I missed my meal. My post-workout window is there. I have to have my pre-workout. Everything has, I can't have carbs. I'd rather an example of this, it's not probably within the realm of orthorexia in the way someone would be treated for it clinically, but sometimes bodybuilders will think so much about their macros that they just skip a meal because mm -hmm. they can't get the food they want. So rather than, rather than having, um, you know, let's say a chicken sandwich from, you know, burger, some drive through that's not that bad. They will go six hours without eating because they need to have chicken and rice. It can't be the bread mm -hmm. and, and the chicken, even though the macros would be close. It's the food for them in this case. That's so important. So, so, so some people have, you just have to figure out where, what you're willing to do mm -hmm. and what's sustainable really is the main thing. And then, then pair that to where you're trying to go. So then that will boil down to figuring out what, how you can, conjure that in energy and put that into figure out what works for you so marrowing that down your the answer to your question how do you know if you're making progress in a bodybuilding perspective well if it's let's say that your goal is to be bigger like guys on i don't even know if flex magazines around anymore i don't cruise by the magazine uh racks in the grocery store anymore so but let's say that your goal is you're an off-season type of goal well, you'd have to figure out ways in which you're going to monitor that progress in some way, shape, or form. So let's say you start off and you've been doing the, the, the bro split high volume and you eat enough to make gains and you're looking at pictures in the mirror, strength in the gym, which I think is very, very important and highly underrated, and uh, body composition, which you can assess even with the DEXA if you like, or skin folds, knowing where those skin folds on you are the thickest. You don't necessarily have to do skin folds to get an estimate per se, mm -hmm. but skin folds can be used in sort of a qualitative pseudo quantitative fashion and follow along your weight. So for instance, if you get to 200 pounds and the sum of three skin folds for you is, is 30 one year and you get to 200 pounds another year and your sum of skin folds is 20, that's obviously an improvement. Mm -hmm. So you can follow along those ways. So someone then would pay attention to those progress variables as well as, and this is the hard one, depending on the mindset, employ some form of auto-regulation. Mm -hmm. But this can, this, can be a, this can be objectified to some degree too. So let's say you're training a high volume like that. I'm just sort of picking extreme examples just for the sake of, of clarity. And you're sore all the time. You go in the gym and you can tell, you go to pick up the first 45 and put it on the bar and it feels like it weighs 145 pounds. Like you're, you're chronically overreaching, maybe even not quite overtraining, but you're not making much progress. And you can see and feel it in your body. Literally, the, the soreness is there. Um, you, you're not sleeping well. You've got some of the start, the beginnings of all those um, symptoms of overtraining. Your sleep is a big one. Your appetite starts to go to shit, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. That's probably too much. If you're, especially if you're sore all the time, this has been something I've picked up on recently as being probably more important, a lot more important than I've given it credence, credence in the past. So that person then might say, well, let's, what happens if I cut my volume in half and go from there? So when doing that auto-regulation, there's basic principles of training we want to employ, but for bodybuilding purposes, and I did a podcast on my podcast about, I think, six or eight weeks ago now on principles of training, those being progressive overload, specificity, 
individualization, which is what we're talking about now, um, variety, and and I think I'm missing one, but those are sort of the basics. And progressive mm -hmm. overload is, in my mind, the most important thing related to bodybuilding training for gaining for the purpose of gaining muscle. When you're specifically trying to do that, body fat is obviously a concern, but you're trying to gain muscle mass. And the reason I say that is that there's not this hasn't been connected as much in the research as I think would just make make sense because the data are there in many cases. As an example, or I can ask you this question. How many times do you see studies that did progressive overload if you go and you read the methods. They, they, they tell you how they progressively overloaded the loads over the course of the training regime. And they go and do a correlation analysis just a simple Pearson product moment correlation where you correlate changes in strength or changes in 10 rep wet loads with changes in muscle size. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely vital in my mind. So if you step back and ask yourself the question, this is a question that I think Dante has posed in some way, shape or form. It's one that occurred to me eons ago is that if you, if you take someone and turn them into someone who can bench press 300 for reps, let's say, just picking big numbers, squat 400 for reps, deadlift 400 for reps, 10 to 12 reps in a sort of a bodybuilding rep range, that person's gonna be big. Mm -hmm. they, may, they may not look like Flex Wheeler. There's gonna be some variation in the amount of strength relative to the muscle mass and some variation in the muscle mass gained relative to the strength gains. But if you make yourself into one of the most impressive lifters doing bodybuilding types of training, not necessarily powerlifting, that can be very much neurologically focused and not so much muscle mass focused. Plus powerlifters like to stay in a weight class unless they're the super heavies. Then you, it's going gonna, it's gonna to show in your body. So go back to the program. You're trying to figure out what works for me. Well, here I am. I'm doing all these sets. I'm sore all the time. I sleep poorly. I've got these sort of these things that are telling me I'm overtraining too much. What's happening in terms of my progress as performance wise in the gym? Form is going to follow function to some degree. So if, if mm -hmm. I'm not making any, any gains in the number of reps that I'm getting with the loads that I'm using and or the weight that I'm using for those reps, why would I expect for there to be any change, at, at any adaptive changes in the size of the musculature that's used to lift those weights? There's really not a, much of a logical reason why you would expect that. That's the whole point of the lifting is to evoke that in the first place, be that a natural normal adaptation or something that's sort of a side product. Some people argue that hypertrophy really is kind of a sort of a secondary effect of weight training. It's not really a primary adaptation to meet the uh, demand of the stimulus. That's another topic. So mm -hmm. you can look at that. If that person, let's say they, they decide to cut their volume in half and they start coming in, they start feeling better their loads start getting going higher on all their all their primary lifts and they start making progress the scale takes off their appetite gets better that tells them they're on to something that's great that's i mean that's that's a first step right there then you can start paying closer attention i can kind of continue down this rabbit hole i don't want to just go on a you know 50 minute soliloquy yeah, yeah but um but you then you start figuring out so what works best so let's say exercise selections you know, every, I keep on doing this exercise. I don't really feel it. Um, I don't get, even though they say on the internet, this is the best exercise for this. Yeah, exactly. Like the one you have to do. Like squats are the obvious example, or, or, you know, like a flat bench press, which tends to be a pec here for many people. Mm -hmm. 
that's just that's actually a research finding as well as an empirical finding. There's studies you of said pec, pec tear. A pec tear, a pectoralis mm -hmm. major tear, yeah. <clears throat> so yeah, so you 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 start to find the exercise, you refine your exercise selection of the ones that work for you, the ones that make sense given what you're seeing on your physique, mm -hmm. obviously, and the ones you can progress on best to make sense. So mm -hmm. If you're keeping strict form and you're you're not feeling an exercise very well, dis despite it being the best one, and you're not progressing on that exercise, that's that's kind of a dead end road, I would mm -hmm. say. Whereas if you can take, let's say, leg presses, you can take leg presses. You have, let's say, you're watching how far the plate or some part of the machine descends relative to something you can see to know you've got good depth. You're standardizing your depth at least mm -hmm. your form, and you can go from 400 pounds to 600 pounds on a leg press, keeping the depth and tempo the same. Whereas trying to do squats, which just make your back cramp up and, and make your joints hurt. Let's say a lot of older guys will have that, those issues. Your knees are, knees are getting creaky from it. That's not a good choice for you. Mm -hmm. Some people are built for squats, so to speak. And that has to do with a variety of uh, skeletal structural aspects of the, of the individual, but Find the things that work for you so you start refining and then you can start playing around with different frequencies different volumes periodizing things as well which could be very very important i think and mm -hmm. over the course of several years and, and throwing in different programs as well so let me tell let me tell you this about this study because it's i brought it up a little bit ago but it's really quite brilliant and it, i think it's something i like to like to sort of describe the findings just because it points directly to this <clears throat> Because there's going to be what the study kind of shows, there's going to be individuals who will grow from better from one particular training regime than another. And then there will be some who might grow equally well from two different, very disparate training regimes. And then there will be some who can grow really, really well. And then some who just are sort of down closer to the, the wrong side of the responder spectrum. Mm -hmm. So this study, um, I don't think who the first author was, Damas is the first author on the main study, the one that was a sort of the important finding. But the first study was just an investigation of frequency of training on muscle growth. And they took the individuals and had them train one leg five times a week, three sets each workout to failure. I believe there are sets of 10. And the other leg was exposed to training either two or three times a week. So they had an internal control, which was pretty cool. Basically like having you know twins in the two study groups. In this case, the twins were the left and right leg of the individual subjects. So they had a low frequency or lower frequency two or three times and actually lower volume too versus the higher frequency, higher volume. So they're literally training one leg with low and one leg with high? Yep. One leg. Oh, one, they came in, yeah, every, they come in the lab every day. And I think probably the people who train, I'm guessing the people who trained three times a week probably did Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Mm -hmm. And those who did twice a week, maybe did Monday and Thursday, something like that with the low frequency leg and the other leg got trained every single day. Okay. When, so when they averaged all their results and they looked to see, is there a difference between these different training regimes? Nothing. So it's like the, the, the bottom conclusion there is that frequency and volume in this case really was immaterial as to the muscle growth that they saw. <clears throat> However, they, they reanalyzed their data and they looked at the individual responses. And this is what matters for the person who's the bodybuilder in the trenches is to say, okay, we're seeing averages. We're seeing what you'd expect if you threw 10 people into a, into a gym 
and ran them through treatment X, bodybuilding program X, gave them supplement X, what have you. This is what you're going to expect on average, but there's always people at different ends of the spectrum. There's responders and non-responders. Some people do really well with certain things. You can see this with uh, a simple thing as people could probably relate to using different non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Some people can cure a headache with ibuprofen and some people it doesn't <laughs> yeah. work for them. They take naproxen, aspirin works better for other people, et cetera, et cetera. Mechanism of action is, is pretty much the same for all those drugs, but people vary. So when they looked at the individual responses of the, they just lumped together the two and the three times a week versus the five times a week, they found that some individuals grew really, really well from both regimes. It didn't matter. They were responders to the training, the training loads. Some grew much better from the two to three times a week versus the five times a week. And for some, it was the opposite. The higher frequency, higher volume was much better than the two or three times a week, lower frequency, lower volume. And some individuals just didn't do really well with either. So was so, there, was there evidence that like in some people, the leg hypertrophy was like drastically different in one leg versus the other? Absolutely. There was, that's exactly what I'm saying is that, okay, okay. so let's say you and I did this study and, mm-hmm. and we looked at the size gains in the leg for you that was trained five times a week versus let's say twice a week. And for you, the five times a week was <clears throat> head and shoulders above, pardon the poor pun there, the two to three times a week. So five times a week worked best. You li- literally could see that the, the leg that was trained every day grew much better than the one that was only trained twice a week or five times a week versus twice a week. And I see the opposite. I look down and I, the, the two or three times that leg looked, it's, it's, they're just looking at the quad actually. So it's just knee extensions, which is it's a nice model. You don't have to worry about systemic stress and mm-hmm. it brings people in too. They wouldn't, they, they really couldn't have done like the left side of the body entirely with, with right. the five times a week versus the right. And total difference. So I see just the opposite of what you see. My twice a week leg does really, really well. I get great gains there five times a week, no dice. And so that's what they saw. Bring in a third person, a friend of yours or a friend of mine, who's someone who responds really well. They, they saw great gains in both legs. It didn't matter for them. So, and others didn't see gains really all that much in either. So that's just the training aspect of things. Mm-hmm. So when you're back in that position that you asked me about, you're like, okay, so what, how do I know where to go next? Well, you don't necessarily because what the, what the guy down the road did or the guy across the gym did in terms of lowering or increasing his training volume may not match what you need to do. He may be better with five times a week in this study. You may be better with twice a week had mm-hmm. you been in this study. And the other thing that's there as well is the, the, the impact of food. So some people will grow really well. They don't need to change their diet. Maybe they have a hearty appetite already. I've run into, it's, it's a, a fairly common theme that a lot of the bigger bodybuilders, just generally speaking, have really, really hearty appetites. Mm-hmm. Like kind of ridiculous, like definitely on the far end. Like, you know, I, there was a guy that I competed against years ago and I remember seeing him it was off season. We were at a show together and we ordered some food. We we're at a hotel. So we're up there with a, another person who's competing. And he ordered like, I think three hamburgers through the hotel. Damn. restaurant. Yeah. I mean, it's not a, it was a big meal, but the impressive thing was, I think I ordered the same, maybe it was two hamburgers. They were big burgers. And I was eating mine and kind of talking and I wasn't wasting any time. I was hungry. 
he put those burgers down in like three minutes. They would just vanished. It was like a magic trick. That's how he eats. He just has a really high, he could put down six or 7,000 calories a day easily, consistently. Yeah. He was at one end of the spectrum. So for some people who maybe did better in that five times a week, they may have some genetics, which give them a proclivity for gaining better with a higher volume, higher frequency, or maybe they just naturally ate more. I don't believe yeah. there's dietary control there, but this is something that definitely plays a role in real life. And it's like, it, it goes back to what suits you, just kind of how you talked about how if, if typical back squats give you pain in some area of your body, then just don't do them. And the thing that I think that relates to nutritionally is like, if you hate oatmeal, if you hate rice, if right. you hate some food, just don't have it. There's, there's plenty of things right. you can include in your diet because you have to enjoy it to some extent. If every day it's like masochistic to go through your, your day of eating, then that's not going to be something that's sustainable for you, but you can find there's tons of things that you can eat that will help suit your goals that are going to be something that you enjoy. And so that it's more motivating to keep on your diet plan. Right. And for what's masochistic for one person might be a nice level of control and orderly structure to the day for mm -hmm. another. So some people, we have a lot of people who sort of they end up in doing bodybuilding in part because they like the lifestyle structuring that comes with it. Yeah, it's absolutely. The personality. And so, it's kind of like the mix, like food should definitely not be all hedonic. <laughs> that's how, you know, that's how you lead to Americans being 50% of people are obese. But yeah, mm -hmm. at the same time, it shouldn't be something where it's just, you have to hate what you eat or anything like that. I think another thing that I, that I'm reminded of is like in the, the old bro science, sort of bodybuilding uh, stuff that I was entrenched in is it was like, for some reason I had it in my head that, you know, if it tasted good, it was ineffective. And you almost have that sort of same um, mindset in exercising sometimes too. Like if this doesn't just, just suck and tear me down, kind of like you doing those 20 sets of 20 on squat, you're like, oh, this is mm -hmm. definitely going to work. I'm just in absolute pain. But it's like, no, it's about finding the right dosage for your body and to right. make incremental gains. Right. And uh, let me say something about dosage too, before we, we can veer away from this study, but it, in general, the way, I, the way I conceptualize the weight training stimulus is that it's a hormetic one. So there's some sort of dose, dose response curve. And you see this definitely with volume of training where you do one set, that's not going to give you your optimal growth, obviously. One set a week is not going to do it. And then and there's going to be a lot of variation here. But as you increase the number of sets you do, the volume of training in particular, at some point in time, you're going to get what the maximal, this is what, what Mike Israel talks about, like maximum coverable volume, what have you. And then you go beyond that where you're trying to do too much. And that's going to be a function of your nutrition and your recovery as well. So for some individuals, that five times a week might have been, it, it didn't work that well for them in terms of growth. It might have worked better if they were paying attention, if they had a different lifestyle. Let's say that person was on his or her feet all the time. I think these mm -hmm. were all males in the study or they had to climb a bunch of stairs they were a construction worker and they just their their diet was was awful that would that may not have been very successful for them because they had poor recovery and they were interfering with the muscle growth with tons of other activity whereas if they were had a different job a different diet would focus on their sleep etc cetera, etc cetera, that may have been a much more productive training regime for them so all the other pieces definitely fit in there it's mm -hmm. interesting. Um, yeah, that, that mindset, it's here's the, the one of the catches sort of with the human mind that I've noticed sort of empirically. I'm an, I'm an armchair, armchair psychologist. I definitely don't have any 
like real training in that area, but you know, you yeah, I'm right there with you. So I love it. Yeah. So there's to be focused and, and goal driven. We, we want to have that sense that we're, that we're suffering perhaps that we're in pain, that we're, that we're making a, uh, an effort that's representative of the dedication we have to get to that goal. So eating just chicken and rice or just bodybuilding friendly foods, these specific, very short list of foods is something that, that tells us we're on track in that regard. Mm-hmm. Gives us some feedback. We're doing things correctly. And if, if you're not looking past, and that's sort of a bro type of way, and I'm a bro too, so this is not, I mean, I'm, I'm, the, I'm as meathead as you get, I think. Mm-hmm. I'm an absolute, absolute, absolute knucklehead in the gym. I just love to be stupid and just go bonkers. But I also like to bring the science in. So for instance, and I'm, I'm going somewhere with this, people can check this out on my Instagram if, if they want. Um, one of the things about a post-workout meal or peri-workout recovery supplementation that makes a nutrient timing approach, and I've written articles about this on Elite FDS and it's in my books as well, is that you wanna take advantage of the insulin sensitivity that comes with training and the receptiveness to protein for protein synthetic reasons that comes from the actual training bout. That's the time when you basically set everything in motion for muscle growth to happen. You're gonna take up glycogen more quickly when the glycogen levels are lower, insulin sensitivities can be highest because you've just trained, so at that point in time, you literally want plenty of protein. Doesn't mean you need to go completely overboard, but you want high glycemic index and high insulin index foods available to you. Mm-hmm. So eating oats and chicken, let's say, which is going to give you a lower glycemic index, which is, is nice when you're dieting down, for instance, so you have steady blood sugar levels that can help some people with appetite, et cetera. That's not what you want necessarily post-workout, let's say. You can, you can get a high glycemic index with a variety of kind of foods, but one of the things that works really, really well that tastes great, and it's, we're talking only like four or five times a week, is cereal. Mm-hmm. And you can go to an American grocery store for those listeners who aren't Americans, and there's a whole aisle, like one-twelfth of the grocery store is just yeah, cereal. Really. And that's because it tastes great. Mm-hmm. And there's some variation in the glycemic index there, but you can pound a lot of, most people can pound a lot of cereal. It's and so palatable. I, oh, it's so great. Right. There's, and there's so many good flavors, et cetera, et cetera. It's not something you want to make an entire diet out of, but right now I'm in an off season growing mode, which I haven't been in for a while. And I'm trying to put down more food and I've used this. I've written about it. It's in my books. I've used cereal post-workout for 25, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And so I've started, I just started posting those just kind of on a whim. I'm eating a box of cereal post-workout just literally just one box. So uh, how many calories is that usually it, the, the highest one that I actually, when I, that I remember I did, I, I did a, a dedication box. Someone wanted to live vicariously. So I ate a box of gold, a family size box of golden grams. And the total with the protein powder in there was 2,580 calories for that meal. So it was a, like, a Solid. Two, it was a 2000 calorie box of cereal. So I'm just posting those on my Instagram. Every day I come back and I just take a picture of the label or the front of the box and, and just it's hashtag cereal gains nation, which was totally facetious. I'm not mm-hmm. trying to create a nation. We already have a nation of cereal, cereal eater eaters, but it's a way to get the food down. And that's a total breach. And I've gotten tons of questions exactly at what you're, what you're pointing at that like, that's not how bodybuilders eat. What are you doing mm-hmm. there? It's like, well, that's what our physiology has set us up for 
And if you're trying to put down calories and I've got it sort of a nutrient timing approach that works for me, it's not magical, but it lets me take in a, a caloric excess. And I figured this out over 40 years. I, I look forward to that cereal meal. It tastes yeah. great. It lets me get the food in. If I tried to do that with rice, well, I'd, there's no way I'd get 2000 calories. No, no, rice. no, not even close. Not, yeah, wouldn't even, wouldn't even be, I mean, within, I would just feel awful. I'd spend, I'd just spend three hours eating the rice and then the next meal would start. You know, mm -hmm. it'd be one continuous meal for six hours. So that's an example where the science, and if you're really paying attention to what the science tells us, and everyone knows about insulin, insulin's a, it's a drug used by bodybuilders for years and years now. Um, we can pay attention to the physiology, what's being evoked by the training stimulus and deviate from so, that sort of hardcore mindset that only certain things are allowed because, and let me say this too. In, in that respect, there, there may be someone who would get, they might put on a lot of body fat trying to take that approach. Mm -hmm. That might not work for them because the extent to which people add body fat from caloric excess is highly variable as well. There's some early twin studies from 20, 30 years ago where they overfed twins for about three months. This was done up in Canada. A guy named Claude Bouchard did these studies. He's an endocrinologist, epidemiologist and somewhat of a geneticist. And they gave him a thousand calories a day, caloric excess, six out of seven days a week, which is a lot based on a caloric balance measurements they did at the beginning of the study. And they gained anywhere it was like from like three to like 12 kilos of body, of body weight and body fat. Mostly about two thirds was body fat, but that varied as well um, over the course of that, that three months. That's ginormous. That's a, like a, it was like a fourfold variation across individuals, even though they had them sequestered in a clinic where there's no, like, they couldn't like, you know, scrape the food off under the table to the dog or, mm -hmm. you know, somehow scoot out that they were, everything they're eating was being watched. They were under 24 hour surveillance. So some people couldn't get away with that. Some people wouldn't need to because they gain weight really, really easily and metering their food on the, on the upward direction, try to gain muscle and limit body fat is something that's important for them. Whereas you might be in this situation. I've, I've talked to guys who were like 200 pounds literally 12%, 10%, maybe who are putting down five or 6,000 calories a day and the scale still wasn't budging. And then there Crazy. are other people who they would, they would, if they saw that person, they would chop their head off because they're so envious mm -hmm. of the situation they're in because th they gain body fat so easily and dropping it. So, so extraordinarily difficult for them. So yeah. that the cereal gains thing that works for me, it's a great way for me to put the food down. It, what make, it makes sense. And of course, I'm paying attention to my, my health parameters. I don't have, you know, lipids and blood pressure that are, you know, off the chain. And um, my, my blood glucose is fine. It's always within range. So those things are okay for me. Someone else, that might not be the right approach. But it is yeah. definitely a deviation from a certain old school way of doing things. But interestingly enough, for instance, on intense muscle, because you know, if you follow, do you know who Ken Hill is, Skip? Um, it rings a bell, but I don't okay. think so. I'm not top of my head. Skip loading is his, um, sort of the, 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 the name he's given to his sort of style of dieting. So it comes from shit loading. He has a way of dieting people where they will basically diet for the majority of the week. And then they'll do, it's a, it's sort of, um, it's a cyclical diet. And then they'll have a skip load on the weekend, usually on a non-training day. And it could be like six to eight. The, the time will vary depending on where they are in their diet and and how they're responding to the process and they'll eat just as much as they possibly can mm -hmm. 
to some degree. And it, it's something you got to watch out for in terms of uh, eating disorders because some people will can go over the top and they get used right. to like eating all these foods that probably aren't the best for them. But it's it's half of a day, one out of seven days a week. Mm -hmm. And so for people back at the intense muscle world where Skip was the owner of the board and many people were doing skip loading and they're putting down boxes, plural of cereal a day or other pancakes and probably feeling sick also, afterwards. Uh, a lot of them did not actually, oh, Sometimes, really? but you just find the right food for them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Some people don't like, it. it's not for everyone. Like it's, as I said, some people can do, do really well with that. They, I mean, it's a he can get people in phenomenal condition. And if you looked at what they're eating on their skip loads, two or three weeks out from the show, you would think that's impossible. And in that environment on that board, that's an old school board, really having a box of cereal after a workout was not at all out of the norm because so many people were doing it. So that's the hard thing is to step outside the paradigm that's presented at you and look objectively what's going on. So you, mm -hmm. you grow up in a gym where everyone, you know, just does set after set after set, like Arnold used to, you just presume that's the way. Yeah. You presume it's the only way. Yeah. And you go in and do, you know, DC training, let's say, and you're in and out of there in an hour, you know, and you do, you know, uh, a rest pause set and, and maybe some straight sets and a Widowmaker and you're done. And they're like, how many sets you do? I'm like, ah, five, I guess you could say maybe three depends on how you count them. They'd be like, you think you're going to grow from that? I'm like, I'm like you you're out of your the, mind. But if you go on the intense muscle forum, especially when Dante was posting all of his pictures. And fortunately I think that those were gleaned from the boards, um, the repository of pictures, but his progress pictures were just ridiculous. They're as, they're as good as you can get for off season games. Most have been lost to father time and they're buried in the internet and kind of irretrievable, I think. Right. But absolutely. And that's because he was going back to that basic principle. He was taking people and making them impressively, massively strong over yeah. the course of that training. And the frequent it was, it was it was off the mark. But you know where he got that from? He got that originally from observations that he made in the gym of the people who are making the best progress and how mm -hmm. they trained. So, yeah, I think, I think a good example for me of like how people can differ in that way is I'm more of an ectomorph type of body. And like last year when I was going through a six plus month uh, bulking period, I tried to go higher with my calories, like 800 over maintenance, give or take. And mm -hmm. I just, that just led to me having a lot more body fat than, than normal and not any faster muscle gains than I was used to seeing. Whereas this year I'm more focused on even like a year plus of just really sustained like three ish hundred uh, calorie mm -hmm. surplus and not adding as much body fat, but feeling like the muscle gains are about the same. So that goes back to kind of, like you said, you have to find your own way. You have to experiment on yourself. Everybody's so different. And something I've talked about on the podcast before, when it comes to coaches, especially is the best phrase you can use sometimes is just, it depends. You know, if someone were to say, right. Scott, is cereal good for you? Well, it depends. It's good for trying to put on muscle for me right now in this bulking period. It's not good for me when I'm trying to diet down for a show. You know what I mean? Things aren't just mm -hmm. black and white, like people want them to be. Right. Yeah. And I mean, there's an important point too there. There's like, there's been a lot of talk Fritz, about P ratio um, and what that means in terms of bulking and where your P ratio will be best. And that's the ratio of protein versus total weight accrued. So muscle mass essentially relative to the weight gain that you make. And one of the things, even if there were some sort of relatively clear delineation as to what really happens for a bodybuilder whose weight goes up and down over time, off season versus pre-contest, 
in terms of where, when the P ratio is best, the individual is still going to have to pay attention to that. And it kind of comes back to, if you can put on muscle mass, let's say you're, you're, you're ectomorphic sort of naturally, muscle mass is not going to come easily to you. And you need a caloric excess to make that happen. And here's the thing, the P ratio is going to vary probably depending on the caloric excess. But the way I think I, I like to look at this, and, I'm, and I, I mentioned this a good bit in my book, is that at some point in time, you go from 300 to 500 to 800 to 1,000 to 1,500 to 2,000 calories in excess each day. At some point, you're going to max out how much muscle mass you can put on with that caloric mm -hmm. excess. And we know where the rest of the calories are going to go. So the key is, of course, finding that and, and also determining, and this is a big picture thing, where you want to go overall with your body weight and your, and, your, and your bodybuilding goals and what you're willing to put up with. So let's say, and here's, and here's the way that Dante used to phrase it, and it's a great way for it. Let's say you had three years to put on as much muscle mass as absolutely possible. And you didn't care if you look like the most slovenly person to the outsider of all times. Like what's going on with this? What's going on with Jake, man? He looks like he's really, he's like, he, he's exactly, he's, he's <laughs> lost it. He's, you know, he's just sitting at home and like doing Netflix and Uber eats. And it's just like, mm -hmm. he's just, he's not training, but you're trying to put on as much mass muscle mass as you could knowing, let's say you spend two of those years gaining optimal muscle mass. So you make it a thousand calories a day. That's the mm -hmm. most you can actually do. And you gain a lot of body fat. Well, that's a sacrifice. You probably have to buy all new clothes. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't necessarily like how you look. And for many people, I think this is actually sort of a subconscious limiter as to how, many gain, how much gains they can make. Is like, you just don't want to do something if you're not liking the result. If every time you eat, your belly looks like you just, just swallowed a bowling ball, you, you don't feel well, and you're not seeing that, for instance, translating in a way in the gym that feels right to you for some individuals off season that one or two hours in the gym where all of that rest of the day suffering um actually sort of shows up where you you feel strong you're making prs on all your lifts it's worth it to do yeah. that for the other 22 hours of the day but for others it's not and they will just eventually just not do it there'll be some yeah, it they won't eat the food they'll, they'll you know they'll they'll limit the meals they'll come up with excuses and then they'll limit themselves it goes back to that like cereal versus rice. If the cereal will actually go down and digest somewhat well and you can, your body's actually making use of it, then that's a lot better than something that just makes you feel just overly stuffed, just disgustingly full. I remember hearing when you talked about like a huge, huge excess, I remember hearing, and you know, you don't always know how much of this stuff is just lore, but a story about, um, I think it was like a younger kid, like maybe a teenager, 20 years old, working out with uh, the West Side guys. And he was like, I can't put on weight. And apparently somebody told him, all right, like tonight, go home, order a large pizza and douse it in olive oil. Just like that extreme of an example of like, just get crazy, crazy calories. Yeah, that's Dave, Dave, you can find Dave Tate talk about that. He, he has mm -hmm. a, a video with John Meadows. That's um, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. 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 That was, that's a powerlifting strategy. There's a guy, I blank on his name right now, but he's really well known in the powerlifting world for moving throughout weight classes and making that. So powerlifters have a mentality that's, they're not focused on the body so much. They're focused on what happens with the weights. So for them, it's absolutely worth it to do that. But if we go back to that, that three-year plan, we just put on as much muscle as possible in two years, and then you have a whole year to diet off. Well, asking you, you know, like, you know, if, if you had, even if you gained an extra 40 pounds of fat, 
that still is less than a pound a week dieting over the course. Mm -hmm. You'd have 10 weeks where you could come off your diet. So like literally you could diet for three or four weeks, take a week off and continue that for a year. And you would get rid of that body fat. Mm -hmm. That's a three-year plan. That's someone going all in for a three-year do or die program. That will, that will produce pretty impressive. That's the one way you want to know what your genetics are. Try that. Yeah, but just max most, it out. Right. And then, and that's, that's not going to be a favorable notion on the internet when people are looking to, you know, try to figure out how to do, you know, exercises that are unilateral that, you know, engage all the smaller musculature of the back and, and make sure they keep two or three reps in reserve and, mm -hmm. and try to micromanage all these things to kind of finagle what I think are like really the small rocks the small dials in what we're trying to do here. The big rocks are getting stronger in the basic movements that work for you and, eating enough food to ensure you're growing and that's a, a and, and how much you eat is going to be a function of what you're willing to put up with and of course your health plays a role here in terms of body fat so i i literally think like i think you could almost ask i would say 90 percent of maybe even the viewers is like do you think that if you took that three-year plan it's a way to sort of gauge what you're doing versus what would be like a really all one way of going all in not for everyone for sure, but you got a show in three years and you've got $10 million riding on this. Mm -hmm. That's probably, that's a, the strategy I would take. I would spend those and I would have some, you know, I'd pull back and have some mini diets along the way in those first two years, but I would just push the weight up and ensure with an absolute certainty that I've gained all the muscle I possibly can during that time. And mm -hmm. that's, and that's way beyond, not that I go with 3000 calories excess a day, but I would make sure, and I would not worry about the body fat. So that upper level of putting on body weight and adding body fat in a way that doesn't seem like it's the most productive, and it may not be, depending on the person, is, is, the, is the realm where many people don't go. Mm -hmm. Everyone wants to stay, and this, this is totally reasonable, wants to stay relatively lean. Yeah, and it's the Instagram age, right? You want to look yeah. good and post pictures. Yeah, and I talk I talked about this on a on a podcast, and it's important for me to remember this. And th this actually applies to you and folks that are about your age. Is that for you, your gym is what you see on your phone. That's what you're. That's what what you're stacking yourself up against. We mm -hmm. all look around and say, so what do other people my age? You know, what do they make money wise? How do they look? How active are they? You know, how they behave? we're social animals. So we're kind of figuring out like, you know, am I fitting in? Am I doing things the way I should? Not everyone's like this, but to some degree, most of us do this. So you're someone who let's say was on an Island where they had no internet and you've got one hardcore gym and all the guys there just push massive loads. They focused on getting strong as hell. They train like animals. They ate like animals. One of my friends from uh, my master's degree, the, the, the power lifter I alluded to, he used to call it dog training. Mm -hmm. This is sport. This is before dog crap. He's like, train like an animal, eat like an animal, sleep like a dog. Yeah. Literally recovery, food, just train like a beast and you're going to get there. So this person on this, on this wonderful island where they're not exposed to, you know, what you see on Instagram, extraordinarily genetic marvels, people that are just for the sake of their Instagram following and maybe they have modeling gigs, they post pictures of themselves. Mm -hmm. They're training shirtless and all these sorts of things because they're always trying to stay lean. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but you've got a totally different impression socially because these little phones, they hack our brains. 
Oh yeah. They're hacking in and, and telling us how things are, but that's not at all representative of your average person. So go back to that Island where the guys aren't worried about gaining body fat. They'll bulk up assuming they're not doing themselves any harm that they know of. They're doing blood work and paying attention to their, their health markers. Those guys have a different perspective and they don't mind getting fat and no one's going to, no one's going to look at you and say like, what happened to your abs? Or you're not going to be thinking that they're thinking what happened to my abs. They'll mm-hmm. look at you and maybe they'll say, maybe the reinforcement is, man, you're getting big. What, what, yeah. how, like how much, has, how much has your squat gone up? Your legs are gigantic and you're mm-hmm. waddling around because you gained some body fat, but your legs are also bigger. Mm-hmm. So the reinforcements is different. Imagine like an alternate universe where, and this is something I'm training with an IFBB pro uh, here in town now, phenomenal guy, Derek Oslin. And one of his sayings, and I love it, and I followed this, but I just didn't say it. So I'm attributing this to him is strength is king. He's a really strong guy. And that, you'll see that on most of his posts. Imagine an alternate Instagram universe where strength is king was like set into people's minds as bodybuilders. So instead of seeing someone, not that there's anything wrong with there's a place for everything, but there's more of a shift to like, who's moving the big weights, who's making progress in the gym. That Mm -hmm. would be the marker of whether you're fitting in literally, whether you're doing the right thing, that would be the bro science, so to speak of what the right thing to do is. And now, as you just, as you said earlier on, things have changed where the, almost the science of things, which gives you some icing on the cake in some cases, Mm -hmm. um, has become sort of the, the focus as opposed to the real meat and potatoes of the training which is progressive overload, enough food, enough rest. It's a lot of it's not rocket rocket science, really. Yeah, it reminds me of like reminds me of like Arnold and his crew in like the seventies Venice Beach. Like when you talk about just eat, train, and sleep, it was like they train, they go to the beach, they'd go and train some more, they'd go eat, they'd hang out with girls. It was like right. Not not only were they getting enough recovery and stuff like that, but it was just a very relaxed lifestyle. At least you know Mm -hmm. that's how it looks when when they presented. It's like, and that's I think a really important too is a lot of people, especially in today's environment, don't focus enough about um, on like creating a maybe not a non-stressful environment, but an environment where they handle their stress. You have some sort of a mindfulness practice. You are staying off social media or your phone in Mm -hmm. some case, because that's going to stress you out because you need to have some sort of a uh, parasympathetic balance in order to be in that optimal muscle growth state too. Right. I absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. Um, Like phone time, I've, I've run into friends my age and I've run into so many people who their attention span is one and a half seconds because that's what's getting entrained from social media and their phones. And they, people have panic attacks if they leave their house without a phone. Mm-hmm. It's nice to have a phone to dial 911 and do certain things, but I look forward to putting my phone down at the end of the night. It's like, oh, finally, Absolutely. I, can, I can release this leech, you know, that keeps on mm-hmm. pulling my energy from me. So yeah, I totally agree with that. Imagine, imagine too, if, someone's trying to gain weight and they're watching their body fat climb up and they're they're knowing this is going to happen. It's all logically, it all makes sense to them. You know, let's in this study that I mentioned in in Canada, the average without any training ratio of fat free mass to fat mass was about one to two. So about one third of the weight gain was fat free mass. Mm -hmm. And then could you define, I I meant to ask this earlier, but P ratio just real quickly for the audience. Oh, I did kind of slip it in there. So P ratio, P refers to protein. It's the ratio, ratio sort of to understand where the term comes from. It's the ratio of, from bodybuilders perspective, muscle mass to, to total body weight gained or lost when you're in a caloric excess or caloric deficit. So 
from our perspectives, like how much muscle are you gaining when you gain 10 pounds mm-hmm. is three of it muscle mass is six of it muscle mass. So the P ratio will be the protein content of the body relative to the other um, portions of the body. And that's, it's going to be a function of how they're doing body comp and how they're measuring that. But the P refers to protein being fat free mass, essentially, which is where your protein component is going to come from. So that would include like bone mass and organs and all sorts, all those sorts of things. So it's, it's not a perfect surrogate for muscle mass, but it gives us some idea of the fat free mass, the stuff that's non-fat relative to the whole body changes in weight. So, but imagine that person then who, who's making great gains. Like, let's say if you gain 30 pounds over the course of a year and 20 of that is fat free mass or muscle, mostly muscle mass. 20 pounds of muscle mass is just ridiculous. Yeah. That's off oh, the yeah. charts gain. That's just, that's just mind boggling. And that's just taking that average, at least in the short term of about one third fat free mass and changing it into two thirds of fat free mass for every unit of weight that you gain. So if you just over eight 30 pounds based on these shorter term studies, maybe a third of that would be fat free mass. That's what the P ratio digs into. That's a whole other body of literature. But if we can just ensure that maybe two out of three pounds are muscle mass and you gain a pound, if you you gain just two pounds, a half a pound a week, so about two pounds a month or 24, 25 pounds a year, Mm -hmm. you would have gained like 15, 18 pounds of muscle mass in a year. That's ridiculous. But you are gaining body fat. So someone who doesn't, even if you half that, even if you gain 30 pounds and it's 15 pounds of fat, that's still 15 pounds of fat that you've gained. Mm-hmm. And you, when you're trying to do that and you look on your phone on social media, it's very rare to see examples of someone uh, documenting that off-season progress. What you almost, I mean, and, and of course, you know, the, the algorithms guide you towards the things that, you, that you're interested in. So they basically construct your reality for you to some degree. So what I'm seeing is not a cross-sectional, you know, um, unbiased slice of what's out there on, in Instagram world. But almost all of what I see as far as progress picks, not all of it. There's some, like um, some of the guys, the muscle mentors in, who are in the UK that I've been on their podcast. Cal does, has done some really cool off-season shots. Um, Jordan Peters doesn't do as many physique photos, but he, he talks a lot on his board um, and he has posts on his Instagram about making gains. So there are examples of guys and most of them, of course, the big guys too, but mm-hmm. there's not very many posts of average people representative of most of the people who are looking at Instagram and liking and following making those off season gains while their body fat goes up and the look becomes less of a look that they really like. Yeah. You just don't see that. So you're getting no social reinforcement, at least in terms of your phone, that you're doing the right thing. You're literally just like you're out there on your own, an island under yourself, putting on body fat, gaining muscle mass, hopefully. And if you're not tracking these things with some sort of body composition, which is what I mentioned in my book, you can do that with DEXA. You can do that with some form of a, a formal body composition and then correlate that with your own skin fold measurements to get an idea of what your relative gains are. But if you're in looking at your strength gains, all these sorts of things we mentioned earlier on the podcast, if you're, if you're unsure of that, the objectivity of those ways of tracking your muscle gains and 
everything you're getting almost like literally nine out of 10 of the things you see are of people who are lean or who are leaning down. Like you've got this really strong psychological, this almost like a stressor telling you, making you question, like, is this the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? Is this going to work out in the end? Am I going to scale this weight? And then, you know, lose it all at the end, which does happen to some people. And I think that's often when they're not actually tracking what's happening in terms of the fat-free mass. They're not paying attention as they go along. So it's a difficult thing to do that, to push yourself yeah. outside of that arena because then you're, you're in no man's land. You're the only one out there doing that, you know? And I have I, I think that, that I think that you can just gain a really huge competitive advantage over people too by looking at things on the on terms of like one, two, three years, as opposed to the people that want to every single year I have my bulk and I have my cut and I lean down. You can really you can gain such a competitive advantage, but you do have to go to that different place mentally where you go, Okay, I know I'm not gonna love the way I look every day in the mirror in terms of body fat wise for this mm -hmm. period of time, but I know that I'm more focused on the long term goal. But so when I finally do decide to get shredded, I'm going to have so much more muscle, maybe more muscle maturity. And I've just honed this in so much more than the person who is bolt cut, bolt cut, bolt cut, especially once you look towards like, again, like I mentioned, lifestyle type bodybuilders where, oh, I got three months to get lean for the summer. And so I'm going to cut down often that's going to involve losing a lot of muscle mass. And it's like, do you, should you even care that much? It goes back to how much do you care what other people think? If you go to the beach and you're not super lean, you know, and you see 20 people that you might never see again, is that, was that worth, you know, kind of halting your bulking progress? You got to think about stuff like I, that too. I think what you touched on there is, is really important. And one of the things that, that I feel and I've experienced too is sort of a secondary um, growth. It, it's a, it's a, it's a, a reward that comes from bodybuilding. It's a, it's a way that you improve yourself if you take on those heavier goals and then you have to step back and say, okay, what is actually driving me here? Am I, how much, to what extent am I worrying about other people's opinions of me, people who I don't even know? And of course there's phenomenon that many, many of us have the perception that people are looking at us and making judgments. When, if you actually ask those people, they're not, they're not thinking anything that you think they're thinking about you. So you get in doing, in doing this in, in literally, taking on a very sort of a structured long-term goal approach to things, you get to see your insecurities exposed. And then when you can see those things, then you can eliminate them. This is, this is something that can make you more, the sort of the, ironically enough, interestingly enough, is for many people, bodybuilding is a way to feel more comfortable. It can be anything from like body armoring themselves. They want to be so big and look so intimidating that, they feel like they're, they're pretty safe because they're wearing a, a suit of muscle armor. And that comes from some sense of insecurity or they want to feel better because they have a really impressive physique and they get complimented or what have you. And so that's, that's one aspect of why we do this. They're not that there aren't others. I mean, I'm very much sort of like a tinkerer. I'm a scientist. I like to kind of play around things like, you know, someone I was liken it to someone who's got like a hot rod that they work on in their, uh, that they show at car shows and they work on in their garage at night. So, but as far as the insecurity goes, if you do take on that long-term goal where you literally have to look at your insecurities, body fat wise and physique wise, which are what brought you to bodybuilding face to face, then, then you can strip those away because you realize, interestingly enough, I don't, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to suppress my anxiety over being judged by others. I'm going to suppress that insecurity. I'm going to realize it. 
and release it and let it go. And when you actually do that and you realize, you know, this is how I'm going to make better gains and actually come up with a better physique, you end up with that better physique if things go right. You gain mm-hmm. the muscle mass, you come back down, you've made the progress. And along the way, you've accomplished two things. One, you've made the physique progress that you wouldn't have if you were, if you were constantly going through repetitive bulking and cutting cycles and kind of like two steps forward, two steps back. So the physique has improved, but in gaining that body fat and letting go of those insecurities along the way, you get back to the better physique, which you originally may have undertaken to, to get rid of those subconscious insecurities, but you don't have them anymore because you, you, you ditched them on the way up mm-hmm. with the body fat. So you got it. That's your second win. You got yeah. the better physique now, and now you don't care about the body fat. So in a way, you don't even care about the physique so more, but you still like it. Aesthetically, it's still nice and definitely not a, ma- not a bad thing. If you could you know, wave your magic wand and say, here I am, you know, I've got a much better physique than I did two years ago, I'll definitely take it every single time, right? That's, that's kind of a no-brainer. But that's the thing that I think one of the gifts that can come from this pursuit is you get to see all sorts of things like that's one when you if you're if you're gaining and you start to start to complain about oh i'm so i'm so full all the time like you know this is just getting to be so much you realize you know i've got a pretty good life this is a right. first world problem i'm complaining because i'm eating too much mm-hmm. there are people who have quite the opposite problem so you start to gain perspective on all sorts of things so those those stresses this is kind of a self-imposed stress i think this is something that's that's kind of a unique aspect of human psychology again i'm armchairing here again yeah like you stress the, the yes. good type of stress, how I describe no, it. No, not so no. much that is that you stress can be good. It's, I guess maybe in a way, but it's, it's brought on, we bring it upon ourselves because that stress is what evokes some sort of improvement in who we are. It's the stressful, challenging times, the hurdles in life from which we grow. And we don't have that so much necessarily in our day-to-day lives. We've got electricity, we've got air conditioning, We've got internet. We've got cars to drive us around. There's really not much stressful physically in cer- certain senses. We've also got the, the bizarre world that we live in now, which is so different than we evolved in. But we're missing some of those things that really challenge us at a deep level. And those are the things that bring us together very much as human beings. There's an awesome book called Tribe by Sebastian Junger, where he oh, yeah. outlines various levels of evidence. Yeah, showing this, this notion. So the bodybuilding is a pursuit like sports. This is the whole, like why in the world would we do, would we have sports and athletic endeavors? We create a set of rules so that we can have a very formative way of challenging one another to evoke improvements in who we are to get mm-hmm. better. We bring these challenges into our life with another person or against ourselves. Yeah. It's innately human. Exactly. It's a, it's really a bizarre, but wonderful thing. So interestingly enough, you take that three year challenge on, let's say, or two years, you get the better physique and you also have gleaned away the thing which probably evoked you to want to do that in the first place. You're no mm-hmm. longer bothered by the body fat because mm-hmm. you've been there, done that. So that one's out of check that box. Look at the next, the next internal struggle, which, uh, which you have to overcome. Uh, by so, the way, Scott, is 1230 yes. a good stopping point. Is that okay? Oh, sure. yeah, whatever. Okay. Yeah. Whatever works uh, for you. 
what I wanted to say about like what bodybuilding I think has done for me is I kind of like a lot of people, like you mentioned, I got into bodybuilding as a teenager, teenager because I was insecure and I wanted to improve my body just because, you know, I wanted to attract girls or I wanted to look more manly or whatever it is. And like you said, I can completely resonate with what come, what came to mind for me is like the journey is the destination is one of the things that, that I love. One of the, you know, old, old, but good statements that I love. Mm -hmm. And it's made me so confident because I, I put a podcast out the other day and it was, I think I called it confidence requires evidence and how bodybuilding has made me more confident is I've seen when you put in the work and you figure out what works and you apply it, it improves your body. And for me, that directly translates to other things in life. I see how that can affect my relationships. I see how that can affect my intelligence. I see how that can affect the business I'm growing. And that's why I love bodybuilding because for me, it's such a microcosm of life where you have, again, kind of like we've touched on this evidence and science-based side, but you also have this anecdotal and what works for me side. And I think that's everything in life. I think that the people who sort of master those two things and don't get too attached to one or the other are the people who you see make the most improvements in whatever it is that they're pursuing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they don't uh, limit themselves to one specific paradigm. They're not locked mm -hmm. in. You know, the interesting thing too, and what you sort of outlined, or one, one aspect of what you just said there was that bodybuilding is evidence that if you can take charge of the various features of your life that you have control over your destiny so to speak but on the other side of the coin what you'll come to find out and i learned this long ago for instance training with dave henry ifb pro phenomenal genetics and i've even i've even get a gave a seminar where i covered some of the evidence of this a few weeks ago here in town on the genetics of bodybuilding i titled it why you don't look like a pro it's one of my favorite talks to give is that there are some things you don't have control over. So no matter how much, how I train, like I can dot every I, cross every, every T, there's certain limitations as to how good I get. I'm not gonna beat, beat Big Rami on stage, even though I might know more about bodybuilding than he does in certain regards. I'm not gonna, I'm not, I mean, I could get a pro card maybe when I, when I turn 60, when there's no one left to compete against me, mm -hmm. but I'm not gonna be an IFBB pro, you know, who's gonna get to the Olympia or what have you. So you start to realize that there are certain things about life that just that, that are just going to happen. And so you gain a sense of that you can control certain things. It's kind of like the serenity prayer. Realize what you can control, what you, what you can dictate to some degree, and recognize that there are certain things that are just beyond your control, and there's no use fretting about those. Mm -hmm. And when you're digging Easier in... Easier said than done. It is. It is. <laughs> you know, it's... Like, you know, from a Buddhist perspective, attachment to those things, attachment really to everything, you know, especially those things that we wish we could control mm -hmm. that we can't is the, is it's the root of all suffering. Mm -hmm. so that's, that's where, that's where we lose, um, you know, quality of life, I think is trying to try like continue trying to knock on a door that's just not going to open for you. Find mm -hmm. the ones that can, but also realize that that's just another door that didn't open for me. That's just how it is. You know, mm -hmm. oh my, and I, I, the subtitle of that, um, it's something like this, but the subtitle of that, that talk is uh, why you're not playing in the NBA, why you're not an NFL superstar, why you're not a world level concert pianist, why you're not working for NASA launching rockets, you know, name mm -hmm. it. There's not, there's so many other things that people, you know, if you're five foot three, you're, unless you're spud web, there's like some examples you're not going to be in the, in the NBA. It's not going yeah, to happen. You're not going to dunk a basketball. No. And but no matter how hard you work. Exactly. People are willing to accept that. They can see that, you know, that's possible. 
but bodybuilding is a little more nebulous. It's got, there's two features of it. One, uh, it's your body. So you take it a lot more personal. The fact that you, you stand yourself against the wall and you measure your height and you're five foot three and you know, the average guard is six foot three or whatever it is in the NBA, you're a foot short that like, no one's going to say, you know, what a loser you are. Like you obviously didn't, you know, pay your dues back in the days when you're supposed to be growing. Mm-hmm. Like, what, what the hell, man? Like, what's up with that? Like, just excuse yourself. I don't want to be in your presence because you're, you're so worthless and weak, right? That doesn't happen. But if people, if you look at your, if people look at your body and, and the people that will do this, we gauge one another in that way. There's judgments that happen in people's minds yeah, and there's the perceived judgments as well. So the body is so much more important for us. And that's the, of course, the focus of bodybuilding. It, in the one sense, it, it's, uh, it's something we have to be careful for because it can drive us crazy, but it's also, uh, it gives us so many ways in which to learn more about ourselves. Like we've just talked about mm-hmm. figuring out like, okay, this is now I don't have to worry about the body fat being, it, it, it doesn't mean that I'm a horrible person or that I'm sloppy and lazy or any of the negative things which may I may have consciously or subconsciously conjured in my mind to be associated with having higher body fat if my body fat goes from 12% to 17%. Yeah. I'm still going to be okay. It's still fine. So you can clear those things away. So you've got this you've got this emotional attachment which can really kind of muddy logical thinking for many people. You just don't think clearly like I mean gosh, I mean Here's an example, and I almost don't want to go to this just because you get yourself in trouble, but it's the quintessential sort of stereotypical example where the wife or the, or the woman asks her significant other, do these jeans make my butt look fat? And like, yeah. you can't answer that question in the right way, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So, but it's like, your butt's how it is. The jeans fit you. Like, there's, there's nothing you can do about it, you know? Of course, they are, do have jeans now that lift the butt up and all that kind yeah. of thing. Have you, but, are you familiar with Sam Harris? Of course, yeah. He he wrote. I I read his book, uh, Lying, and Lies. that's what it reminds yeah. me of because he talks about a point in there where he goes. He talks about you know that exact question, like if your wife asks you, "Does this make me look fat?" And he's like, "You have to think about things when you're thinking about telling the truth of, of like what is this question asking?" It's like your wife is asking. She's kind of just asking for you to affirm your love and affection for her. She's not mm-hmm. necessarily asking for you to objectively say yes or not, yes or no. Do I look fat? So it's like context always matters so are you lying Mm -hmm. if you say honey you look beautiful no you're not lying because you are affirming your love and affection for her which is what she's looking for so it's people and that's part of just growing in emotional intelligence is you have to understand that things are things are never black and white we want them to be but they just never are yeah there's context and there's all the subtext Mm -hmm. behind it and with our bodies too speaking talk about sub subtext and nonverbal communications how we dress, how we move, the thing, our bodies are our vessel. That's like, before you say a word to anyone, your body is conveying you know, hundreds, if not thousands of messages to everyone around mm-hmm. you. So it's literally, you know, in this egocentric way, who we are, it's what we are. And so it makes sense to be very, very conscious or maybe extra un- unusually unnecessarily conscious of what that is. So yeah, that the lying thing is what I actually took a uh, in a um, philosophy class that I took as an undergraduate. My we had a discussion section, and the one I took was on lying. Mm-hmm. So I already like and Sam actually wrote that book after having had a course, I think at Stanford, on lying 
and much of that book is sort of lifted information from that course. So yeah, I love that book. It's great. It's yeah. Really and he's, he's kind of a proponent of, of Buddhism too, with his waking up app. Absolutely. And the one, the one last thing I wanted to ask was I, I saw in your uh, profile on your website, you talked about beginner's mind, which in Zen Buddhism is Shoshin. And so how do you relate that to your bodybuilding endeavors? And I think that people will find it easier relatable um, based on the things we've already talked about so far, but how do you try to, especially as someone who's very education or, or educated and academically inclined to stay in that beginner's mindset and take things objectively and not try to get attached to, you know, things that you've seen in the past or things that you've read or whatever. Oh gosh, there's so many, so many ways, so many aspects to that. Yeah, I know only, only, if, only 10 minutes left. It's like, it could be another right. hour, but we'll have to do it again. I, I will oh, actually in 10 minutes, I think I can fit this in. So I'm going to okay. give you my, I'm going to give you my thought experiment. So, cause especially Sam Harris loves thought experiments as well. Mm. So my thought experiment is, and I may have mentioned this on a podcast before, but I've told several friends this, and it's a way for me to have tremendous empathy and understanding for other people. So if I'm given some information, some, someone's opinion or their thought or their post or what have you comes across, um, rather than sort of trying to judge it through my immediate paradigm, I try to understand where they might be coming from, really from the, coming from the idea that they know something that I don't. Mm-hmm. because they're them and I'm and I'm not them and there's a reason why they said these things and it may like immediately contradict everything that I know empirically from you know being in the trenches and scientifically but for some reason that notion whatever they're uttering or they're they've they've typed away on social media is there so it'd be interesting to figure out what that is because I can learn something that's not immediately apparent to me so here's the thought experiment so imagine we're we're, we're in the future sometime you're in the future somewhere it's a future versions of ourselves and time travel is now completely possible <clears throat> uh i saw um uh what's the guy what's the physicist's name who uh he does a lot he's been on joe rogan show he talked about when two black holes come together they actually can create a gravitational pull such you could actually travel at a certain perimeter from those two black holes and go back in time so Was it theoretically Friedman, maybe What's that? Was it maybe Lex Friedman? He's the most recent like scientist. No, no, I can't remember his name. It'll hit me. It'll hit me probably in three minutes as I'm talking away here. Anyway, so we've got a situation. We've got time travel. We've got the gigawatts to go back in time and zip around however we want. And cloning is a very simple thing. So you as a scientist decide, you know, I want to sort of see if I can differentiate the impact of nature versus nurture on who I have become. So you create numerous clones of yourself and maybe you disguise a little fancy genetic engineering, the skin color of these clones so that you can go back in time and implant these clones in a way that doesn't disturb the fabric of space and time in any adverse way into a pregnant mother and let that clone version of you in a way that, that he will make his way through the culture and not appear as like, you know, why is there this white guy, you know, who's among all these otherwise dark skinned people you can, you can then go and immediately after you've done that, zip forward 20, 30, 40, 50 years in time and find that version of yourself who grew up in a hunter-gatherer tribe 20,000 years ago in South America, who grew up in the 1800s in the United Kingdom, who grew up in war-torn South Africa during apartheid, who grew up in the Far East in the, in the times of Genghis Khan, something mm-hmm. like that. And you can immediately differentiate through things. And you run into versions of you 
and you can let's say you've got a you've got some sort of a Star Trek type translator too, so you can speak to yourself, interact with yourself in a way that you know yourself doesn't recognize you. You may run into versions of yourself that you really don't like. Yeah, there could be a version of you because of the of the the nature or the nurturing of that time and place became a very angry, despondent, um, aggressive, reactive person that's very very different from who you are. So, and you can find some, you, you might find one version of you who's a monk, who's mm -hmm. got more peace of mind and inner stillness than you can even fathom potentially having. So you see all these different versions of you genetically all the same essentially, and, but also nurtured through different ways. So take this back now to you meet someone, whoever it may be. And if this is a sort of a Sam Harris notion, that person at that time in their life is a function of their starting point the sperm and the ovum coming together, the gestational, the growth and development, and then all the, the nurturing that happened through the course of their life, that's happened sequentially. You can think of this in sort of a simplistic, uh, deterministic way as Sam Harris sort of does, looking at the idea of free will, is that that person, just like a series of dominoes falling one after the other, has become who they are in each and every moment as a function of the moments preceding who they were. Mm -hmm. So they go and become that person because that's who they are from the starting point, And that's what nature or nurture has done to them. So here's the, here's the, here's the thing that kind of uh, helps me understand people or, or think with a good bit of empathy about people actually realize that I can't truly empathize with someone necessarily, because if someone does, does something that's egregious or they have a notion, which seems very odd or strange, if I were to say to myself, what would I do if I were them? Well, if I were them, if I were that person, I would do exactly what they have done. Mm -hmm. I would do exactly what they have done because I would be them. I would have been born with their genetics and I have lived, I would have lived their life and I would behave exactly the way that they do. So there's some reasons for that nature and nurture and everything in between that bring them to, to that point where they're, they're saying those things, where they're behaving in that way, be it, you know, they're just a, the worst troll in the, in the history of the internet or they're just completely clueless. They're asking questions that I've already answered in the post that I gave, or they're just behaving badly or really, really well in some other way. That's because of the circumstances which have produced that person or the virtual image of that person that I'm seeing online in that very moment. Mm -hmm. So if I look at it from that way, it's like there's all these wonderful examples of different ways in which the genetics of the human being can manifest around me and what a wonderful, what a wonderful world to explore. So someone may say something that's completely bizarre to me. That to me is the thing where I can take my beginner's mind that I know nothing because I have no idea why they might've said that initially. Yeah. That's immediately something that attracts me because now I can try to figure out what's going on. And maybe it's because they saw something or thought they saw something in the gym one day and they, they misattributed things um, because of their viewpoint what someone told them somehow and i'll get some insight into the psyche of someone who's just starting weight training for the first time at the age of 42 in today's day and age where people are wearing masks and things are very different from when i started in you know 1981 training in a basement gym mm -hmm. or at my junior high school so i sort of think about that and this really applies to judgments about people in general when you see people who are doing things that are um you know unlawful literally criminal acts 
It doesn't mean you should let them let, and Sam Harris talks about this a good bit. It doesn't mean you should put them in jail, but there's a reason why those criminal acts came to be. And I like to understand those things. So criminal acts and then lesser acts that are bizarre and strange to me are the things that I want to learn more about. Because chances are, I can probably also, if I'm interested in knowing myself better, which I think is a, lo a lofty and worthwhile goal, I can probably learn something about myself by understanding as best I can why it is that those individuals are behaving in the ways that they are. So that thought experiment is uh, what I think back's like, you know, if I were them, I would do exactly what they're doing. Yeah. So I have no room to criticize them. Literally, it's, it's not completely infallible logic, but it's a pretty strong argument that resonates with me sort of that emotional sense, it quells that those reactive centers, those non-mindful centers that make me want to blurt back at that person, like you're an idiot, or like you have no idea what you're talking about or what have you. It's like, no, they just doing exactly what they would, what, what I would do if I were them. Mm -hmm. So I have no room really to criticize, but I have lots of things obviously potentially understand if I, if I take the time to do so. Yeah, I think just my message is be lead with love and curiosity. And I think that that can get you a really long way. Right. Absolutely, man. Well, that was that was a really great way to end it. And I'm, I'm sad that I have to go. This is really fun. We'll have to do it again sometime. For sure, man. I love to. Jay. All right. Well, I appreciate you being on and thank you so much. We'll include like you mentioned your Instagram, and your website, and we'll include all that good stuff in the show link. So thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. If you would, please take a minute out of your day to review and rate the podcast as well as subscribe. It would really help me out a lot. And if you're on Instagram, go ahead and follow me on there at jakeparker.fit and screenshot and tag me when you're listening to the show. I'll be sure to share it. And thank you personally on there.